Good morning, once again. <clears throat> My name is John. I serve Mission Church as one of the pastors. I'm excited and honored to be with you this morning. The mission and vision of our church is to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. And, and we are intentionally working towards accomplishing that goal by loving Jesus, pursuing a life that loves Him, by pursuing a life that, that lives like Him in our pursuit of, of holiness, and also by intentionally sharing the gospel in every space and place of our life in order to lead others to Jesus. We have been in a sermon series through the gospel according to Matthew. And this morning we find ourselves once again in the midst of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which just so happens to be the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. In our text this morning, Jesus provides us with the fourth of six illustrations that he uses, that Jesus uses to depict a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and of the Pharisees. Now if you would, join me by turning in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 33 through 37. Please bear with me this morning, for I don't know if I'm losing my voice or what's going on. So I'm going to do my best, and I appreciate your grace as I work through this this morning. When you're there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5. Verse 33 through 37, writes, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great King. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Well, this is a, a text that from my research is often overlooked, but God, we, we would, uh, it would not behoove us to do that. Um, your word is without error. It's authoritative. And so God, as we dive into these few verses, I pray that you would Soften our heart so that we could have an understanding, a clear understanding of who you are and who you've called us to be. I pray that you would equip us for holiness, that you would equip us to, to leave here on the mission that you've called us to, to lead others to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the goodness of the gospel so that we might fall more and more in love with you. Lord, as I preach, I pray the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, you are our rock and our redeemer, and we worship you this morning. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We live in a culture in which truth is relative. And the result is a world that is, is saturated with deception, overcome with dishonesty. It seems as though there's an overwhelming and pervasive indifference to truth-telling. And this has not only infected our day-to-day -day conversations with one another, but has invaded the most solemn pledges in life. Perjury under solemn oath is, is expected. The sacred vows of marriage are broken almost as fast as they are made. Ultimately, it seems as though trust is something that is extremely hard to come by 
within the world and the culture and the society in which we live, it, it seems to evade us, the truth does. All you have to do is turn on the news, scroll through social media, to see that there is an active, eroding trust, a fostering of disunity, a weakening of the fabric of our relationships in our society. And so tell me, in this world full of falsehoods, in this world in which deceit is the common dialect, how do we know who or whom or what we can trust? There is indeed a crisis, but it's crucial to acknowledge that this crisis is not simply isolated to external factors, but it permeates our own hearts. I mean, it's difficult to always tell the truth, for all of us have an inherent tendency to deceive and to manipulate. Think about this. How often do we say things that we don't entirely mean? If you're a parent, you probably do that quite often. (laughs) How often do we find ways to slowly backpedal out of our agreements? We clearly agree to do something, and then we search for little loopholes to allow us to get out of what we said we would do. We're so quick to demand the truth of others while, as they don't live up to the standard of our expectation, we we are simultaneously just as quick to whitewash over all the areas that we don't live according to our own expectation. Our tongues are guilty of false witness lying. We are guilty of gossip and slander, of boasting and flattery and of cursing. We bend the truth in order to earn the approval of others. We lie in order to manage or manipulate other people's emotions. We use filters on our social media pictures. We even dye our hair and lie about our weight on our driver's license. There's a great preacher and author. His name's George MacDonald, and he wrote to his son on December 6, 1878, and he said, I I, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. At the same time, I tell a great many lies. I don't know about you, but I I identify with McDonald here. I mean, there are times when I'm talking to somebody and I suddenly realize that what I'm saying isn't fully the truth. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. And I think this difficulty comes from a mixture of my own deceitful nature and the pervasive deceptiveness of the society and the culture in which we live. And as a result, I can't help but wonder, as we live in this world of deception and among a people whose nature is inherently deceitful, is it possible for us to rise above the prevailing culture of dishonesty? Is it possible for us to live an authentic, genuine, and trustworthy life in the midst of this muck of deception? How can we live sincere lives in this truth-preventing world? Well, our text gives us hope this morning. You see, it is simply because of the fact that God kept His Word. And He kept His Word by sending Jesus to fulfill all of the promises that God has made us. And He sent Jesus to die for our deception. He sent Jesus to die for our pretense and our falsity and our lie and our lack of truth-telling that we might be transformed by by the grace of God into a people who are defined by sincerity. A people who are defined by the truth. And He enables us through the power of His Spirit 
to be a community, to be a people defined by radical truthfulness. And we're going to see this in our text clearly in three movements. One, God's command. Two, Jesus' exposition. And three, Christ's call to sincerity. So let's begin with number one, God's command. Verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Here in verse 33, Jesus is summarizing a couple of the Ten Commandments, specifically commandment number three and commandment number nine, but not just those two commandments. He's summarizing the entire teaching that the Old Testament provides regarding oaths and vows. But before we dive into what Jesus is teaching here, we first need to understand what in the world we're talking about regarding oaths and vows. What are they? And so when we talk about an oath, what we're doing is we're referencing a practice similar to somebody being sworn in in order to testify in a court of law. An oath usually invokes some sort of sacred object, or, and it does so in order to strengthen someone's statement or promise. Think about someone putting their hand on the Bible as they are sworn in to give testimony and to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. Think about that and you get the idea that Jesus is referencing here regarding an oath. Vows like oath, they, they also invoked, invoke God's name or some object to strengthen that promise. But unlike an oath, a vow is a promise that is made directly to God Himself. Think about a man and a woman on their wedding day at the altar, vowing before the Lord, making a promise to the Lord to fulfill their responsibilities as husband and wife. And you get the idea of what a vow is. Now, as we consider God's command regarding oaths and vows, it's important to note that vows and oaths were encouraged and are encouraged. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. It says, you are to fear the Lord your God and worship Him. Remain faithful to Him and take oaths in His name. See, the picture of, of making oaths and, and vows is not only encouraged, but it's encouraged, you're encouraged to do so in God's name. It wasn't only presumed that we would make oaths and vows. The text encourages us to do so. However, making a vow and promising something in the name of the Lord is not to be something that we take lightly. In other words, if you weren't planning on following through with whatever it is you're vowing to do, you better think twice before making that vow. In fact, Moses emphasizes this in Leviticus 19, verse 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God, I am the Lord. And then in Numbers 30, verse 2, Moses writes, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. In other words, oaths and vows, according to God's word, are serious business. In fact, there's absolutely no circumstance that should lead us to breaking our word. However, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't swear an oath, that we shouldn't make a vow at all. See, it's important to note that the Bible is not forbidding us from taking an oath or making a vow. The Bible's not telling us that we shouldn't do that. God Himself swears oaths. 
Consider how in the book of Genesis, God swears to Abraham that he would send a redeemer. And then later in Genesis chapter 9, God swears that he'll never, ever, ever send another universal flood on the earth. And we see that promise made to us every time we see a rainbow in the sky. And then in Psalm 16, God vows that he will then raise his redeemer from the dead. He makes that promise. And we know on this side that he held true to that promise, didn't he? Even the Apostle Paul regularly swore by God's name. Almost every letter to a church, he does this. Consider Romans 1.9. He says, God is my witness. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I call on God as my witness. And then on my life that I would, that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. He is vowing and making an oath, not only in God's name, but upon his own life. You see, the Bible is not forbidding you and I to to, to swear an oath or to make a vow. On the contrary, it's encouraging us to do that. For vows and oaths are designed to encourage truthfulness, which is also why the Bible clearly forbids that we would make false promises, that we would make irreverent oaths. In fact, doing so would break the third commandment, which says in Exodus 20, verse 7, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses His name. This is the commandment that says you are not to use the Lord's name in vain. Making a vow, an oath, in the name of the Lord and then breaking it is part of what it means to use the Lord's name in vain. So again, you can make a vow, you can swear an oath by God's name, just make sure you keep it. Because if you don't, the Bible says not only are you guilty of breaking the ninth commandment, but also the third commandment, or the third commandment and the ninth commandment, because the one I didn't just say, says, don't lie. <laughs> don't lie. And the truth is, friends, here, here it is. Even saying something like that is funny, right? The truth is, it, it's basically saying, maybe there's times when I'm not telling the truth. It's just this weird phrase. But the truth is, we're all guilty. We've all broken our promises. We've all gone against our word. We have all lied and found loopholes to get out of doing what we said we would do. And this leads us to a conundrum. If the Old Testament doesn't forbid the making of oaths and vows and even encourages us to swear of vows and and oaths in the name of the Lord, then why does Jesus say what He says in verse 34? Perhaps you were thinking that as I was saying, that it's okay. Why does Jesus say, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Don't take an oath at all. At first read, it seems that Jesus is changing things. It seems that Jesus is is making it easier for us to obey this rule here. Think about it. If we're all guilty of breaking our oaths, if we're all guilty of not keeping vows, and as a result, we're now guilty of using the Lord's name in vain and bearing false witness, then why not create a, a new law that will... Prevent us from disobeying. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is Jesus helping us by making the law a little bit easier for us to obey it? And the truth is, some denominations would say yes. In fact, this text has led many Christians to believe that Jesus prohibits us from taking oaths in a courtroom, and so they refuse. It's one way to get out of jury duty, but... 
It's not a faithful way to get out of jury duty, at least according to Scripture. Others have used this text to keep them from pledging an oath of allegiance, whether to the military or to law enforcement. Some have even used this text and applied it to the refusal of taking wedding vows. But I want to submit to you this morning that this is an inaccurate translation and understanding of this text, and that we have missed the plot if we're using this text in that way. See, these folks don't fully understand what Jesus is saying, what leads us to the second movement in our text. Number two, Jesus' exposition of God's command. What is Jesus actually saying here? Let's revisit verse 34. Jesus says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. So why does it seem that Jesus is altering the law? Well, we have to understand that he's not fundamentally changing the law at all. Instead, he's tackling a pervasive issue of lying, and he's doing so from a different angle. You see, it's crucial to understand that the people listening to Jesus on the side of this mountain, they have distorted, and they were taught a distorted version of God's law. Over time, what happened is is the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they had twisted the original teachings regarding vows and oaths. Over time, the Pharisees, they propagated this dangerous idea that an oath or a vow, well, it was only binding if you used God's name. In other words, if you made a promise or swore an oath or made a vow by someone else's name or some, some other object, well, you're not obligated to keep it. And this misinterpretation led to this intricate web of rules which created convenient loopholes for dishonesty. Consequently, what happened was a rampant epidemic of frivolous swearing within that culture. One that I would say has continued to this day. Oaths and vows were made without any intention of fulfillment. Phrases like, by your life, by my beard, may I never see the comfort of Israel if I don't keep this. On my mother's grave, on my life, these things became commonplace. Everyday language meant to convey truth became saturated with deception and saturated with manipulation. It just wasn't this act of lying. It was this subtle, crafty trickery, convincing others of one's honesty while concealing falsehood. They, they wanted to manage someone's emotions and, and trick them into believing that me making this oath by my beard, which is my favorite one, or on my mother's grave is convincing you how honest I am, but in my mind I have no plan on fulfilling that oath. Because I didn't. I didn't make that oath on the Lord's name. And so because I didn't invoke God's name, well, I'm not held accountable for my deceitfulness. Imagine a child eagerly promising to share their favorite toy with a friend, yet secretly behind their back they have their their fingers crossed slyly, right? (laughs) Which is a cunning loophole to evade their commitment. This seemingly innocent gesture hides profound deceit, enabling them in the moment to please their friend while also freeing themselves of any obligation to share their toy. It's a subtle maneuver. It's a way of saying, I have fingers crossed behind my back so I don't have to tell the truth. And this childish behavior mirrors 
this intricate system of loopholes and has infiltrated the practice of making vows and oaths, not only in the culture in which Jesus is speaking, but as I said, I think has continued to our, in, in, in our time today as well. And that's why I think this is precisely what Jesus is warning against. He's addressing this deceptive manipulation of our words. Let's look back in verse 34 through 35. Jesus continues. Again, I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne, or by earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Remember, the teachers of the law were saying, well, you only need to keep your promise as if you make a vow according to God's name. And Jesus is saying, what? <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's my interpretation. That's not really what he said. You, you kidding me? If you don't use God's name, then you, you're okay? That you don't have to worry about keeping your word? That you can lie and, and deceive? And Jesus says, what? Wait a second here. It doesn't matter what you swear by. If you, if you do not keep your word, you're in violation. If you don't hold true to your promises and your vows and your oaths, well, where you're in direct disobedience of God's law. See, Jesus is emphasizing that, that swearing things like, by, like heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, well, you're still in error. You're still breaking God's law. You're still using, and at this point, the Lord's name in vain. This commandment is significant because heaven and earth and Jerusalem, these are all places in which Jesus, in which God has placed his name. He created the heavens and the earth to what? To magnify his glory. They belong to the Lord entirely. And Jerusalem was a place where God chose to reveal his presence. And these locations and these places, they were intended to showcase the majesty and the glory and the magnificence of God. So by swearing on these places and failing to keep your oath, you're teaching that the Lord's name is trivial, is insignificant. And so Jesus says it's not merely enough to avoid explicitly invoking the name of the Lord or swearing by heaven and swearing by earth and swearing by Jerusalem still disrespects the glory of God that these places were designed to reflect. I'm reminded of the Westminster Shorter Catechism 55 says this, the third commandment forbids all profane things or abusing anything whereby God makes himself known. See, it's not just about refraining from using the Lord's name as a profanity. Yes and amen, that's part of it. But Jesus is also emphasizing here that using these things as part of your oaths and then breaking those oaths is problematic. And so Jesus is highlighting, not just, what he's highlighting is not just a matter of, of honesty, but, but also how you construct your oaths, how you construct your vows, your language regarding promises. If you structure them in a way that allows you to find loopholes so that you might evade what it is you promised, it reveals something very, very important about your heart. It reveals that there is something wrong in your heart. It reveals a lack of integrity. It reveals a low regard for God, a low regard for His name and His glory and His majesty. And let's be real, this lack of integrity, this lack of honesty, this pervasiveness of deceit, it begins to show its head at a, 
at a very, very early age in our life. Just the other day, I came downstairs, went into the kitchen to find the kitchen completely covered in cupcake sprinkles and chocolate chips and marshmallows and all kinds of stuff. Someone had gotten into Stacy's baking cabinet. And so, as I, I cleaned up the kitchen, the investigation began. Who could it have been? Well, it wasn't long before my dear Juniper, lackadaisically, wandered into the kitchen with chocolate all over her face. And she pretended not to see the mess. She walks in very confidently, mind you. And I say, sweetheart, do you know what happened in here? Why are mommy's baking supplies all over the kitchen? And she confidently replied to me, hands on her hips, Daddy, I have no idea. Chocolate all over her face. Fingers with marshmallow all over them. (laughs) Sure you don't. And here's what happens. Kids, including me and including you, as we grow up, we just get better at that. We get better at lying. We learn what we can lie about. We learn what we can't. We learn what is obvious, like the chocolate all over my sweet Junie's face. We learn what is not so obvious. And over the years, as we grow, we learn clever ways to frame our promises. We move on from crossing our fingers behind our back and, or creating holidays like my kids. Are, it's, it's opposite day today. And then as a result, to counteract loopholes, we learn to do things like the infamous pinky swear. All of our tricks have led us to have to convince others that we're actually telling the truth. And so we, we pinky swear or we, we say things like, I cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And these childish games just continue to grow with us. In fact, we have actual professions that spend their days writing loopholes and contracts and looking to exploit those loopholes in other people's contracts. See, our whole lives, there's this sense that we're spent learning how to, to lie In some instances, it's a survival tactic. And it can also be an ego booster. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Now, when I read this, I thought, that's a silly statement. Of course I can. I I can go right now to the store and buy a box of Just for Men and comb it through my beard. And within minutes, I'm going to go from gray to black. I, I can do this. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Understand, Jesus is not condemning you for dyeing your hair. I want you to, I want to make sure you're not hearing what I, or you're, yeah, I don't want you to think that I'm saying dyeing your hair is a sin. Please hear me. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) What Jesus is getting at here is that it doesn't matter what you do to yourself. Ultimately, God is in control over you. God is sovereign over your body. This verse speaks to the control that God has, the complete control that God has over us. The point that Jesus is making here, that sometimes in how we speak and how we live, we reflect this sense of control that we have over ourselves that we actually do not have. And in this one verse, maybe you're thinking about this, but Jesus addresses a deep issue within our culture. I don't have to tell you that we live in a time and a space. We live in a culture and a society which has adopted this mantra. My body, my choice. And God is saying you can't say that. Why? Because it's not our body. You didn't create yourself. 
You don't own yourself. Your body has been given to you by God. And it's our job to be a good steward of that which God has given us. You know what else this means? We cannot create for ourselves whatever it is we want to be. Friends, if we can't change the color of our hair, how can in the world can we change things like our gender? There's some of you who know people that are experiencing the results of living in a broken, sinful, and fallen world, and they're struggling. They're struggling with a variety of issues, physical issues. We know those in our own congregation that are struggling with chronic pain and and disease. We know those who are struggling with, with depression and anxiety. And we know so, some within our own congregation and friends and family that are struggling with things like gender dysphoria. But the answer to all of those issues is to run to God in His grace. It's not to take upon ourselves this control that we believe that we can change who it is that God created us to be. And it's our job as the church to surround people who are struggling with these issues and to love them and to care for them, not by affirming that which is a struggle as a result of living in a sinful world by pointing them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they need to hear from us is that the freedom that this world is propagating and an extreme individuality is not freedom at all, but it's rather enslaving them and shackling them even more. In fact, the freedom that we all long for can only be found in God who made us and who loves us. In fact, it's God who rescues us from these issues, and He is the one who will give us a glorious future. For when we stand before the Lord at the end of our days, we will be made whole. Not just in mind, not just in soul, but in body. Friends, your God-given identity has been flawed because of sin, every one of us. But the good news is that God has committed to us to making it right. We can live today as a part of a wonderful story. Why? Because Jesus, the Rescuer, has come. And He lived a perfect life. And He was fully God and fully man. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, He was man. Fully God, fully man. Physically. He lived a perfect life. He died. He rose from the dead. And He sent His Spirit. And, he, and it's His Spirit that makes the transformation that every one of us need at whatever level we are in regards to our brokenness. He, he's the one who transforms us into the likeness of Christ. It's true. We're all broken people. Every one of us. Broken physically, mentally. Broken in our hearts. But if we trust Jesus, God will begin a transformation in you that He promises to see through until it is complete. And on that day, when we stand before the Lord, we will stand before Him not just in soul, but in body. And all the brokenness in our mind, all the brokenness in our body will be no more. For we will be perfectly integrated, body and soul, for the glory of God. So as we live in this broken world, a world that has been marred by sin, rather than trusting our culture, rather than trusting our emotions, Rather than trusting that we are who our broken and flawed feelings say that we are, we trust God and who He says that we are. 
And we live in pursuit of a life that trusts in God's control over us, over our bodies. And we live with the understanding that everything we say and everything that we do takes place before the watchful eye of a sovereign God who takes with the greatest of seriousness every word that comes out of our mouths. Why? Because it's from the heart that our mouth speaks. How we speak, the promises we keep or don't keep, they all speak to the condition of our hearts. Jesus is going to say in just a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by what? Its fruit. And he's addressing these Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from a storeroom of good and the evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. You see, that which the heart thinks, the mouth speaks. Every careless word, every false promise, every broken vow, it reveals the state of our heart, the condition of of our heart. So tell me, how is your heart this morning? Are you living a life of honesty? Are you sincerely and straightforwardly dealing with others? Are you seeking to deceive? To manage someone's emotions? Brothers and sisters, God's commandment here is clear. We are to be honest with our speech and to refrain from frivolously using the Lord's name in vain. And so if your words, your, if you're living a life of pretentiousness, this pretense where you're, you're, you're you put on a, a mask and you're living falsely, and the false promises, what happens, they're revealing a heart that is far from God. But the good news, friends, that if you are here this morning sitting under the sound of my voice and you are a Christian and you're trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, you've submitted to him as Lord and you've trusted him as your Savior, he says that he is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins, that we can confidently become before the throne of grace and we can rest in the truth that he is faithful that He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every word of deceit, every lie, every pretentious um, intention, He cleanses us from those. And if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus, you're invited to trust in the only one who is able to replace our cold, dead, deceitful hearts with a heart of flesh. He says simply trust in Him. Romans 10, verse 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that He raised, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved from your deceitful intentions. You will be saved from your lie telling. You will be saved. You will be saved from a life of pretentiousness. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now this leads us to our third point and our final movement in the text. Number three, are you doing okay? All right, Stanley's doing good, so I'll keep going. Number three, Christ's call to gospel sincerity. Christ's call to gospel sincerity. In other words, with all of this in mind, how is it that you and I are to speak? How are we to, to live? I'm glad that you asked that question because Matthew chapter 5, verse 37 answers it for us. 
Jesus says, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So does this mean that I should never, ever, ever make a vow or take an oath? No, we've already discussed this. So the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid this at all. God himself took an oath. So if you find yourself today or in the future in the context of a court of law and you're being required to testify, and to do so you have to make an oath, it's reflecting the seriousness of the situation that you're in and be rest assured you are not violating Christ's words here. The point that Jesus is making here is that our everyday speech, how we interact with one another, how we interact in business, how we interact every day in every space and place of our life, as Christians, our speech should never require an oath or a vow for someone to know we are speaking truthfully. I shouldn't have to pinky swear you because I'm living such a life of honesty that you can trust that what I'm saying is true. You shouldn't have to look behind my back to make sure that I'm not crossing my fingers. As followers of Jesus, we are to speak and live with sincerity. Our lives and our words should be so free of pretense. Think about this. As followers of Jesus, we may be the only group of people in the world that can live without pretense. Who can live without deceit. Who can live without hypocrisy. Ask me why. Because we have no reason to hide anything. We have no reason to hide our past. We have no reason to cover up our mess. We have no reason to pretend that we're not broken because our past, our brokenness, our mess, our failures are a part of our story. And rather than hiding or pretending or deceiving, we rejoice in the fact that we were once broken. We were once a mess. We were once at one time dead in our sin, but God has made us alive. And so rather than hide who we are and live a life of pretentiousness and falsity and deception, we pursue a life of radical truthfulness because our lives are a testimony that proclaims to the world around us the greatness and the goodness of the Savior who has rescued us from the depths of darkness and sin. Was that a good answer, Stanley? Brothers and sisters, we should live with such honesty that we don't need to swear or make promises to prove we are telling the truth. Jesus here is going beyond the letter of the law, and he's revealing to us the truth that that usually results to to oaths. Because let's face it, as a people, we tend to, to lie. So when we say things like, I swear to God, we're essentially setting aside a special area of truth and protecting it from our usual dishonesty. When we use grand, serious oaths, it's because others expect us to lie. So Jesus is urging us, brothers and sisters, stop cheapening your words with fancy promises and pursue a life of radical honesty in everything that you say and everything that you do. There's a, a German theologian who is helpful here. I, I have the hardest time pronouncing his name. Maybe you can help me with it, but his first name, I think, is Holmut. And we're not going to even try the last name. But he says this. When I utter the formula, I swear by God, I am really saying, I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, 
I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start, and just because they're counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. And this is the sentiment that Jesus is calling us away from in our text. As we pursue a life that loves Jesus, as we pursue a life that lives like Jesus in pursuit of holiness, and as we pursue a life that is leading others to Jesus in every space and place of our lives, we should embrace radical truthfulness. Mission Church, you and I, we are called to be a people of sincerity. Our lives should be guided and defined by truthfulness. And that fact reminds me that we live in a culture and a time and a space that celebrates authenticity. Think about this. Our culture claims to applaud authentic individuality. But in reality, this is the direct opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Because what our culture and society is actually celebrating in the name of authenticity is people following that which their evil heart is taking them. Whatever they're desiring, and they call that being authentic or living my truth. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's a different thing. As we follow Jesus in such a society as this, we're not called to live our own truth. Rather, we are called to pursue a life that reflects God's truth. That's the difference between being authentic and sincere. And so as we pursue a sincere life that reflects the truth of who God is, we don't pretend that we are something that we're not. Instead, we recognize that we are sinners saved by God's grace and we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the one true king. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul writes, let God be true, even though everyone's a liar. <laughs> According to Apostle Paul, he's saying, man, we're all liars. We're all dishonest. None of us have been entirely truthful. We've all broken our word. We have all failed to accurately reflect God's truth. And as a result, we stand condemned before God if we stand there on our own. And so some of us need to respond to God's word this morning by examining our hearts and asking ourselves, is there sin in my life that I need to repent of this morning? Is there someone that I need to go across the aisle and ask forgiveness from? Do I need to recommit myself to the truth? Do I need to consider or reconsider how it is that I'm speaking to other people? Are there any promises that I have made that I need to fulfill? And as you ask yourself those questions, and that list's not exhaustive, there may be other questions floating around in your, in your heart, but as we, do, as we pursue answering those questions, we need to do so from a posture of trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, even though you and I have failed to keep our promises, God has always kept His. Consider with me how God promised to send Him Jesus to live the sincere, truthful life that we have failed to live and to die for our lies. And even though we once followed the father of lies, Satan himself, Jesus came to forgive us, to cleanse us, and through the power of his spirit, transform us into the people of sincerity that he has called us to be. So this morning, look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ and see that God's promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ and rest in God's grace. And be encouraged this morning for all who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and surrendered to Him as Lord. 
He is empowering you today with His Spirit to live lives of gospel sincerity. May we pursue that and trust in what He is doing in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. And though it addresses some very difficult things, Lord, we thank You for instructing us on how it is we are to live like Jesus. But we also thank You that our relationship with You is not dependent upon our ability to live sincerely, but rather You saved us in our pretentiousness and empowered us with Your Spirit so that we might live this life. And our salvation and our relationship with You is secure, not on our ability to do this, but based upon Christ's ability and His truthfulness. And so we thank You for that. And so we leave here today with a posture of of faith. And I pray, Lord, that that You would help us to rest in these truths of the Gospel, knowing that we are forgiven and empower us the truths of Your Word and the the power of the Spirit to, to obey that which You have called us to this morning. Lord, we thank You. And give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.